All right. Welcome to Reverb, everyone. Uh, my name is Calvin Pollock. I'm here with my good friends and colleagues, Alex Helberg. Hey, Alex. Hey, Calvin. How you doing? And Sophie Wadzak joining us for the first time in a while. How are you doing, Sophie? Hey, guys. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me here today. Oh, always so good to have Sophie back. A pleasure. And so it is a beautiful 2021 holiday season here. We are just ringing it in. Uh, it's, you know, we're coming up on the new year. And we're also, as a result, coming up on the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attacks. And loyal listeners of Reverb may remember that we had a kind of spicy episode on this a year ago. This this same group of three, we discussed the January 6th Capitol attacks pretty much right after they happened. And we also discussed Twitter banning Trump and some of the implications of that. But we wanted to do a retrospective because a lot has happened since then. Maybe some of our thoughts have changed. We've learned new stuff uh, about what happened on January 6th and also just the political context has changed. And so I thought that a cool way to begin would be just to ask you all kind of a JFK assassination 9-11 question. Where were you when you first found out about the Capitol attacks and what was going through your head and how have your thoughts changed? You can end with that. Sophie, do you want to start us off? Gosh, sure. Well, okay, so I'll say this isn't a very exciting answer, but if, if I remember correctly, when I found out, I think I was in my living room <laughs> in my own house and uh, was probably finding it out on Twitter. That's probably where I heard about it. And, um, you know, I've lately, and this is maybe like a, a bad thing to say, I've taken a little uh, media break taking a little media break these past few weeks because I was kind of like at a saturation point. But this time last year, it was very much the opposite. And I remember being like very attuned to like what was going on. I was like, because there was a lot of news, you know. So I'm sure I was just in my living room and saw it on Twitter. But I remember feeling sort of the same way that um, that I felt on 9-11 when I was, and I remember I was in high school then. But like, I remember hearing about it and knowing it was a big deal. Like getting that it's like, oh my gosh, this is like, you know, unprecedented and like a historic oh my goodness but like also emotionally feeling just sort of like numb and unfazed by it in a weird way I don't I don't know it's like I still and and like that's that's a weird comparison to make because they're like very different situations but yeah like there's like so much like I remember not feeling as like rattled by it as I probably should have but then again and I'm sure we'll get into this it's not like it came out of nowhere like like 9-11 seemed to me as a 15-year-old to have come out of nowhere. So a little bit more, I, I don't know, I, less surprised than maybe people, maybe I should have been given like the, like the, oh my goodness, like this historic thing. But um, gosh, it's hard to, even to really like put myself a year ago. Time has, yeah. time has become such a strange thing, but. It's been a, a crazy long year. Someone recently brought up on Twitter that the that that picture of Bernie and the mittens it was only eleven. Was was, was this year, uh, and that feels decades ago. It seems like every um, January we have kind of like a Bernie is our little like the ring around the tree. Like what was Bernie Sanders doing around <laughs> holiday time? Oh, he was wearing the mittens. Like oh, shoot, that was only a month. Ago. Like yeah, like a, a month into the year or something, right? And then. And then before that, it was like when Bernie was still running for president two years ago. Right. Remember that? And like, mm-hmm. 
anyway, we'll get yeah. it's too soon in the episode oh. to get so nostalgic. Yeah. No, no, it's it's yeah, the the holidays brings up a lot of nostalgic feelings. Alex, where were you when when you found out and uh what was going through your head at the time? Well, first, I just have to say, I think during this segment, we need to pipe in that uh, that one song, the uh, the song that was like, where were you on 9-11 or whatever. It- where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? I can't remember what, who did that one, but but yeah, no. So I feel like I I, I could compose my own song here about uh, where I was. I I actually, uh, since Sophie brought up that she's currently taking a media break, I I was taking a media break, and so the way that I found out about it, I think, was in our Reverb group chat. Calvin or somebody sent over like, "Hey, how are y'all holding up right now?" <laughs> and I was like, uh, "Fine." Should I be thinking otherwise? And then I looked at Twitter, and I was like, "Oh, okay, all right." So this is happening. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I've I've uh, over the last couple of years, I've been really trying to think about the ways that my intake of different kinds of media influences the way that I think and feel about events of various magnitudes or how I might be thinking about certain events as having more significance than they're due, some as having less significance than they're due, the fact that I might be becoming sort of desensitized to this hyper-normal reality, uh, increasingly hyper-normal reality that we're living in. So, So I really resonate a lot with what Sophie said about kind of having this dual reaction of being like, this feels like kind of a big deal, but also it just feels like a continuation of just the crazier and crazier reality that we've just sort of accepted as the baseline. And yeah, I mean, I'm also influenced uh, because I'm not going to give any spoilers for this, but I just watched Adam McKay's new film, uh, Don't Look Up, just last night, which I thought gave kind of the perfect representation of what it feels like to be in a moment of, like, do we take this crisis seriously among the 17 other crises that are happening simultaneously? Like, to what, how much stock should we put into all of this? How much emotional bandwidth do any of us even have to like commit energy to things like this or is it more useful to to put our cognitive energy elsewhere where we can actually you know have an impact so yeah i i've thought a lot about about that but i think in the moment i remember i was immediately kind of skeptical about whether or not this was actually something that was worth considering a a significant threat to american quote unquote democracy or you know the republic uh i was kind of shying away from some of the i guess more i'd be i'm editorializing saying kind of like grandiose pronouncements about how like dangerous this was and at the time i was i was thinking like i was of the mind that this was kind of goofy and clownish and that it wasn't worthy of being called a coup it wasn't worthy of being called an act of terrorism and I think to an extent, I still believe that. And I can get into reasons for that later as we discuss the significance. But even in the, I think, in the revelations that have come out since then, I'm still yet to be convinced that there's a lot of material evidence that that there is like significant, a significant enough force to actually have made this into a, a coup. Like there's a reason that it didn't happen. And I think that it's because there is more material incentive to uphold the status quo as as it currently stands like Trump is not is not such a figurehead of the status quo that keeping him over Joe Biden was going to constitute something that like the military would want to get involved and and overthrow the US government kind of throw whatever vestiges of a democracy we could even say that we still have uh to the side so 
again, these are all things that, you know, we may or may not disagree upon, and we can definitely get into them having seen a little bit more evidence from here on out. But that's kind of still where I'm at right now, I think, is, is a little bit not not wanting to put all of, like, my energy into, like, you know, investing significant amounts of emotional energy into this, because I, I still don't know the extent to which it's, like, worth it for me to do that. I feel exactly the same way. And I can say a whole lot more, but I'll wait until it's time to talk about it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I was similar in terms of where I was when it happened. I mean, we were all stuck in our houses. It was like, you know, deep in another pandemic winter. And here we are again. And it's, you know, I think that's a really significant undercurrent and, and backdrop for all of this. But I remember what I will say is that I was actually really invested in the last election, in part because of the failures of Trump on COVID. And now, of course, we've seen Biden have a really terrible policy year on COVID. So uh, that that seems to have been misplaced, you know, to some extent. But I'm I'm just willing to admit that, like, I really was invested in Trump actually giving up power. And I think that, like, you cannot deny that he tried to hang on to power and, and that that was, that was a big part of what January 6th was. Absolutely. And I think the, the very fact that we had a president try to do that is disturbing. And so that's, I was processing the events because I was aware that the congressional certification was happening that day. Uh, and I was just kind of like, okay, I'm doing other stuff in the background. I'm going to have like the the vote just because I think like this pomp and circumstance is kind of funny to watch like to stream in the background while I'm grading or whatever I was doing at the time and then I just remember being like wait a minute <laughs> okay this like totally normal ceremonial kind of I mean even like quite bureaucratic process is not proceeding as it's supposed to this is bizarre what is happening here and then you know learning more about what was happening yeah. bizarre is the word for sure like not mm. emotional i'm not sure but like bizarre like yeah 100 percent. well weird. i will say that i did feel some emotions about it even leaving aside like my investment in the election i felt some emotions about it like seeing guys in like nazi and confederate paraphernalia sure like leading the charge Right. And then also, and then also, I honestly, I felt emotions like because it was a massive fucking super spreader event. Like it was just this giant crowd, not masking, bursting into an like, uh, like an in. So I was thinking about like the safety of like people working in that building as this giant crowd that definitely, you know, a large portion of was like anti-mask, anti-COVID precautions. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it is. It's terrible. If you really think about it, I feel like, yeah, I guess this, and this is like, again, that's what's so wild about how, like, I was just sitting in my living room on my phone, reading Twitter, finding out about it. Like, it's such an, a distant way to, like, like, if you put yourself there in the building, like, yeah, that's horrifying. And of course, like, traumatizing and a very emotional like for like if you think about it really happening I guess everything just seems so bizarre and it's because what I was going to say before like wanting to follow it and watch it it 
this is also again I, I feel like i sound like a callous like i have like no heart or human emotion right now but i just like there's something about it that feels like watching a tv show like that was like the finale like i wanted to know what was gonna happen like it i needed closure you know what i mean like w whether or not like the larger question of like who exactly the president is has you, you know what i mean like the, the wider implications of like the oh the change of power like blah 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 but like I wanted us to know how it was gonna end, finally. And I guess it's just hard to really watch it all and like really feel the realness of it because it just is so cartoonish and bizarre and grotesque that your like mind doesn't even want it to like really be a, a thing that happened. I guess that's like a, a snapshot in my brain. Like I have to disassociate it with it, otherwise like, Ooh, how do you like live in peace in your mind if you like know that like that's like ugh. it's just it's like very jarring and like cl clownishly grotesquely horrifying the more you think about it like trump's entire presidency kind of was. exactly yes exactly Basically, right yeah well, I think, and not to bring it back, totally back to, like, we, we should do a movie episode later on Don't Look Up, because I think it's a fantastic example of, you know, rhetoric, sort of like meta rhetoric happening about, like, how do we communicate about these massively, I mean, the, the whole film is an allegory for climate change, but, you know, and it's a kind of a massive allegory for how, you know, government and media uh, and sort of material incentives kind of detract from our experience of things that do have real stakes. So so, I mean, I definitely agree with Sophie on the point of like, you know, people did die at this thing. Like, right, it was significant right, right. in that, like, there were actual lives that were lost. Like, people were very hurt and traumatized by the event. And, and like, the janitorial staff at the Capitol, like, had to right. clean up hum human feces. Yep. Disgusting. Yeah. Disgusting. So it's... Yeah. So there there were there were real stakes to this thing. I don't deny that. But but yeah, one of the things that that movie does also get really well is the fact that they these things still feel very distant. And until you get like a common reference point where we can all sort of like, I mean, the movie uses a comet hurtling towards Earth because it's kind of a convenient sort of like if you just look up, you can we can see that there's this thing that we can all acknowledge as a common reference point to say like, oh, yeah, that's bad. We need to do something about that. And yeah, I mean, I think that obviously, you know, part of the point of that film is that it's never that it's always more complex than that. There's always many layers of mediation between us and these events. And as a result, it becomes it becomes difficult to know how to feel about it because well, you're seeing something. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, because you referenced earlier, like how much emotional bandwidth do I have for this? And that's kind of how I feel because of what you're talking about, which is that, like, for me, like, the bigger planet-wide existential crisis that we're all in is, like, but, like, as a mother, like, that's what I think about. And so I, it's hard for me to, like, of course, yes, like, when you, like, sit with it and think about, like, there that day, the loss that was suffered, like, terrible, terrible, terrible. But, like, there's something about it that feels like we're all supposed to feel more outraged because the thing that was being disrespected was this, like, honored institution of, you know, the government and the presidency and, like, uh, you know, America itself. And, like, that's the thing that we're supposed to feel the most outraged about having been disrespected. But, like, the whole planet is being disrespected you know, like there's pe like insulin costs hundreds of dollars. Uh, uh, you, you know what I mean? Like hundreds and hundreds. Like it's just pl plenty of people are being dis disrespected all over the place in a, like a much deeper 
in more systemic ways. So that like this one day I can't, it's symbolic, but like that's not, the, I can't make that the thing that's like the worst thing that's happened of all the shitty things because it's just not the worst thing that's happening does that sound terrible i don't know if no that makes sense, there's only no, so there's no, only I... so much world hurt that we can process at one time it's true right well yeah so i guess like my response to some of what both of you are saying is that i don't see these things as separate in fact like i i see Oh, yes. You know, what happened on January 6th and like the broader political strategy of the GOP is accelerating the exact things that you both are concerned about and that I'm also concerned about. In fact, like it's precisely, you know, rule by fossil fuel interests right. and other 1% interests that are aligned with the Republican Party and with Trump, you know, that the the abrogation of like basic representational democracy you know, would serve. Right. And so that's where I get concerned that we're dissociating things that are actually part of the same. Of course. I guess what I mean is like political system, the framing of it in in as much as like, you know, the media and the way we talk, we slice things up into little like parcels, like the way it is being. And maybe this is my perception and you guys haven't felt it in the same way, but like in the way that it's meant to be like something that is like, because it can be uh, associated with one day that then can be honored and remembered and written about and like you know because like uh, climate change isn't happening on January sixth for not not to keep like compare like you can either care about January sixth or climate change guys those are the two choices but like do do you know what I mean like it's like being like kind of like wrapped up it with this like memorial bow around it maybe in a way that like is giving it more pomp and circumstance as a problem that. And you're absolutely right. It's not separate, but like, it just feels like it's being treated as like a memento piece thing that can be talked about discreetly in a way that other things. Oh yeah. Can't. Well, and that's yeah. And I think we need we need to think about the fact that like all of our perspectives on this are shaped by the media event of January sixth, right? And the 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 different sort of intertextual forces that played into that. And I, I mean, I do appreciate what Calvin said. I don't want to separate these things as like all these problems as being mutually exclusive. But at the same time, towards Sophie's points, to what extent should we be thinking about January 6th as the, you know, the greatest heretofore abrogation of American democracy rather than, say, like, you know, the gradual chipping away of voting rights that's kind of happened over the past, you know, Right. But decades. it's the same people yeah. doing those. Things. No, absolutely. That's the problem. Absolutely. That's the problem. Yeah. Is that the, the I mean, the GOP, like major figures in the mainstream Republican Party backed this thing and and are also backing state level voting rights but quote that's unquote the thing, reforms. Right? Like right? you can use it to deflect that's what they like, oh no 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 like don't it's like the like don't look behind the curtain thing, right? Like none of that. Look at January Focus on this 6th. super grotesque. Can you believe those people uh, that obvious did that on January sixth? Like none of this other stuff. Like I guess I we're like doing it for them, right? Just like I'm doing it for them. In, in even talking about it, like separate things. Because, yeah, that's, you're right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the point I wanted to make is that, right, so we have the media coverage of this thing, and that's really important to understand that just like 9-11, I think what you're talking about, Sophie, is like media discourse tends to decontextualize these events, right? right? And yes. so to say January 6th is something that happened on one day, and it was a day that will live in infamy. I mean, one of, I personally, one of the most offensive and grotesque things that 
Biden has said as president, in my opinion, was when he said, like, this was the worst. I think he said this was the worst attack on democracy since the Civil War, um, which I found like just I mean, first of all, it's just stupid. Like, it's just like one of the dumbest statements, just kind of like bereft of all historical knowledge. But it's also like erasing so much horror that like the right wing, the same right wing that attacked the Capitol on January 6th, like has done over the last 100 years, the last 150 years, right? The entire Reconstruction period, all of Jim Crow, McCarthyism. I mean, like the list goes on and on and on. And 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 even 9-11, <laughs> like you could argue was was certainly in terms of body count and what it did to our democracy, you know, a much more substantive attack. So like, I think there certainly is a kind of overreach in the framing and evaluation of this in liberal discourse. But I think on the other side, there's decontextualization, I think, that's happening on all sides. And I think like, just because the libs want to decontextualize this into like, it was a day that will live in infamy, that doesn't mean they're isn't a broader context that we should be concerned about um, that this falls into. And I think like, for me, it's like, it's the bleeding edge. Like this is sort of like the far right, grotesque, clownish, bleeding edge of like anti-democratic organizing in this country. And I think that it allows that more respectable anti-democratic organizing by the institutional Republican Party and even parts of the Democratic Party in states like New York, where they have like really corrupt primaries and stuff. It it allows all of that to go on and like push further to the right because we have this super crazy far right that's happening out in the open. Yeah. That's kind of my like, well, that's like Donald, Donald Trump as a president, right? Like such a like taking taking this like almost like a caricature that like normalizes anything that's like to the just to the inside of it because there's this like it's just it's funny to like see it kind of happen i don't know like it's everywhere and it's like in like things have become so grotesque that like a lot of stuff is just slipping under the radar and that's exactly what they want no, absolutely. And I mean, I think in speaking about the sort of, you know, not wanting to make a false equivalency here, but like, it's also it's also hard not to kind of see a lot of politics today. I don't want to say as kayfabe, I don't want to go full black pill on this, but like, I have been very disillusioned with the Democratic Party for a very long time. And I continue to be uh, under, you know, especially in a moment of continuously escalating crisis where you know it we have series of you know half measures some things that have been done for good but like i mean my god like we are not addressing the crisis at the scale that it needs to be addressed in terms of you know whether it's voting rights or climate crisis and there doesn't seem to be a significant willingness to actually take significant political risks to do what needs to be done to i mean (laughs) fucking save humanity like for real um it's so i i don't know i mean that's part of why i find it difficult to invest significant emotional energy into sort of like a partisan aspect of this because a lot of times it does feel like both sides are kind of playing for the same team just doing so with different tactics Mm. yeah i'm trying to channel my friend alec here like (laughs) like i agree with that 100 percent. i mean uh, you know and i just went over my um unbelievable distaste for like the kind of liberal fetishization of this right but there are real differences 
between Biden and Trump. I mean, just look at foreign policy. I was uh, making the case for this recently on Twitter. Like, I don't understand why Joe Biden doesn't talk about foreign policy more because he's been the most progressive president on issues of war, like probably since, I don't know, like the first term. Actually, no. Yeah, like the first term of Clinton's presidency, maybe like post Gulf War. Drone strikes are way down. He actually completed the withdrawal of Afghanistan, which I don't believe that Trump would have done. I think as soon as the bad media coverage would have started, Trump would have been like, OK, uh, we're, we're, we're pumping the brakes on that. We're just going to rebrand it. And so, you know, and that's not to make light or, or to whitewash all the horrible things Biden is still doing on foreign policy and that, you know, he just signed the, the biggest military budget in history, every year the military budget goes up. But I think those differences matter. Like those differences matter to people in Pakistan or in Yemen um, who are not living under the the fear or living under less fear of drone strikes. I, I think we can't like minimize the difference there and even like environmental regulations that even just basic sort of standards and rules that Biden has put back into place that Trump had ended like i think those things make material differences but all of that said i think we should move this conversation into a discussion of something that uh, at least alex and i had a chance to review ahead of today's recording which is kind of you know it should provide an interesting contrast for the kind of perspectives we've been articulating so far and this is we we took a look at at least the first part of tucker carlson's patriot purge which is kind of a far-right account of what happened on January 6th. January 6th is being used as a pretext to strip millions of Americans, disfavored Americans, of their core constitutional rights and to defame them as domestic terrorists. But what exactly happened on January 6th? How much of what we were told about that day is a lie? And I personally found this really interesting. Alex, what did you think of it? It was definitely interesting, that's for sure. Um, it was, I don't, I don't partake of uh, right-wing agitprop very often. It's part of my media cleanse is trying to keep my brain relatively free of those things. But yeah, it's, you know, you're, you're doing a little chlorine test just to see how pickled the, uh, the, the soup is on that side there. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty wild, pretty wild what they're talking about uh, on that side of the, uh, that side it's of the media well fence. mixed yeah. Metaphor. Yeah, yeah. If I can just, if I can add a few more things. There's a fence. There's a pool. There's a. I'm thinking about this pickling. There's a pickling in the pool. My. Yep. Yeah. Pickled soup in a pool for some reason. Yeah. No, I'm not making any sense anymore. My holidays have been my. My brain. My holidays have been fried by my brain. Check out our episode on conceptual metaphors. That's right. Shout out. Shout out. Uh, We need to do a. We need to do an episode on mixed metaphors where we just read uh, David Brooks columns uh, for the entire episode. No, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty awful stuff. There's a lot of, I mean, if we want to talk about callous false equivalencies, whoo, boy, we came to the right place. Yeah. I mean, so, so Tucker Carlson, Patriot Purge, you know, what this documentary does is basically gives the kind of official far right narrative of what happened on January 6th, the broader significance of it. And as Alex said, it makes some pretty, fascinating equivalencies. And so that's kind of how I thought we could go through this is just talking through some of the comparisons that are made in this documentary 
And and what I find most fascinating about this is that it seems to be appropriating so many kind of like left wing critiques of not just this event, but the security state more broadly, militarism, imperialism, and so on. And we can talk about why that is. Why is it that Tucker or, you know, other far right figures love to appropriate the left's critiques? What does that do? Um, and, and why is that such an appealing tactic to them? But so one of the first things that the documentary talks about is this idea that the January 6th attacks have been exploited to, quote, strip Americans of their constitutional rights. And Tucker Carlson interviews this guy, Darren Beatty, who is just presented as a reporter for Revolver News, but he actually worked for the Trump administration. One of the most bizarre details about Darren Beatty is that he, like, like in like November or October, I believe, of 2020, so right at, at the end of the administration, they appointed him, the Trump administration appointed him to the Commission for the, for the Preservation of America's Heritage Abroad, that doesn't Which, sound fashy at all. <laughs> right. It's actually tasked with identifying and preserving cemeteries and historic buildings in Europe, including sites used to kill primarily Jews during the Holocaust. And if if you dig into this guy's history, he in the past has like spoken and appeared at far right events. So this felt very much like one of these moves by people like Stephen Miller and other like kind of trolly far right members of Trump's administration where they appointed someone intentionally as a kind of like f you to people concerned about the Holocaust and Jews. But Darren Beatty is presented as a super reliable source on this claim that January 6th is being used to attack our constitutional rights. Yeah. So and and particularly what is interesting about this, I mean, first and foremost, Tucker Carlson talks specifically not just about Americans uh, being stripped of their rights, but disfavored Americans. He uses that phrase on a number of occasions here. So, you know, using using specifically this discussion of the fact that it's like, well, it's just patriots, right? Uh, the people who are, you know, pro-Trump, who are of the patriot movement, as it's been so-called, and is now being dissociated from the regular Republican Party in all sorts of different uh, media statements by Trump and by others. And I mean, I think that his, I mean, it obviously starts off with this kind of disgusting comparison between fake news stories being used as a precedent for for stripping Americans of their rights or for getting getting Americans riled up about things that aren't really threats. And this is where the first appropriation of a left critique happens because they cite the similarity between, you know, post 9-11, there was this whole, you know, like massive lie that was portrayed, that was perpetrated by, you know, strategic leaks from the, uh, and fabricated documents from, uh, from the federal government to the media. But of course, you know, it's only talked about as being the New York Times lied uh, about WMDs in Iraq. Just as non-existent weapons of mass destruction were used to justify violence in the first war on terror, a false news story published by the New York Times became the pretext for a national crackdown 
Yeah, which, Fox didn't run with that <laughs> no, story No, 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 no. No other news outlets other than the New York Times reported on that, according to the documentary here. And in a similar fashion, uh, the New York Times also falsely reported the death of Capitol uh, Police Officer Brian Sicknick. It was first reported that his cause of death was, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was basically that it was from, it was a direct consequence of violence that he experienced in the crowd that day. The initial reports were that he was beaten to death with a fire extinguisher by one of the rioters. Um, and and some police officers, Capitol Police officers were beaten with fire extinguishers. It just turned out that none of them were Brian Sicknick. Yes. And yeah, exactly. And so they, they focus in on, they have this, you know, the, the tactic, of course, is honing in on one specific example where there was a media screw up, basically like with incomplete information. Okay, wait, 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 wait okay, of, okay. Oh, yeah, so sorry. There's the the they're trying to say like oh look the media is trying to make you believe that brian sicknick was beaten with a fire extinguisher but he wasn't it was that other guy is that <laughs> no 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 they're trying to because his actual cause of death was from uh was from as they say quote unquote natural causes officer sicknick died of natural causes he did not die at the hands of the maga mom and yet you still see in the mainstream media this reporting that it was a deadly mob. A murderous mob. A murderous mob. A murderous mob. Deadly January 6th attack on the Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters. They got the word deadly from this false reporting on Sicknick. It was a blood libel. And again, the national security state was operationalized on the basis of that narrative. Oh, uh, oh the, I see. I the, see. Rea okay. the reality is that he had a stroke, uh, I think, either later that day or the next day. Unrelated um, that... to being beaten in the beaten with a fire extinguisher yeah yeah the, of course their contention is that there's no way to prove an association right. between what what he suffered right. like some sort of post-traumatic stress later okay. uh perhaps uh or you know no it was just because that stroke was coming from a mile away gotcha. <laughs> yeah so what do we think i mean I, I i think the the first question to ask is is january 6th being used to quote unquote attack our constitutional rights I guess I want to make sure I uh, understand who's asking. For, who's asking? Because like, is January sixth is the media is the media's outrage about January sixth being used to attack our rights? Is that the question? Because I, I think that's. I mean, I think that's the claim. But but I think it's it's a combination. So the conspiracy theory theory here is not just about the media. It's about the media in league with the federal government, with the FBI, is attacking proud patriots' constitutional rights. To storm the Capitol? Like, is the contention that everybody has a right to storm the Capitol? <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, and well, and to be prosecuted for, uh, you know, for protesting legitimately, for, for being a dissident against your So government. it's like, it's really, they, they had every right to do it, and if... I don't know if they're saying this, but is this part of it, right? Like, if people can, if Black Lives Matter can protest, why can't we protest and stuff like that? Is that? Yeah, we're going to get into that later. We'll that's a really key. On. That's a really key point. I just well. feel like it's all it's all a little, um, just like sort of logically bereft. It's just like so empty. Do you know what I mean? Or like it just feels any. I mean, I hate to say this because maybe it's like insulting or reductive, but it just feels like. It's like a young child's logic. Like, it's always a different... There's always... So, like, there's always... It's not fair because of this. And but, but 
I don't know, it just feels like very empty to me and I don't know, <laughs> shockingly, I don't know if I'm persuaded by it. I would, I would agree. And actually, just to piggyback off your point, Sophie, that I literally was the phrase that I was thinking about for this kind of line of reasoning was, uh, oh, this is baby's first protest. Like you didn't realize <laughs> that there is like right. uh, that that all of a sudden, you, you know, you've been cheering on, uh, you know, the feds and the cops when they've been beating the crap out of, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters been disappearing people off the streets of everywhere from Pittsburgh to Portland. But now all of a sudden that it's happening to people on your side, you're like, whoa, 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 this is unprecedented. I guess it's, it's like, that nah, thing where nah, it's like, this has been happening for a long time. Right. But like, it's, it's that same kind of logic where like, it just sort of assumes like everything is equal in terms of like my right and your right. Like you have your mad about something and I'm mad about something that means we're both mad about something and equally we're both mad and that means we're it's like that thing where like if pe- people when you're driving you're like oh you're so annoyed by like pedestrians and people on bicycles oh my gosh but then like when you're walking you're like oh my god all these cars and, like nobody's letting like nobody can relate to the other do you know what I mean <laughs> I'm like rambling but it's like you only relate to no, the yeah. one thing that you're in assuming everything's equal on either side of it and it's not so it's just not very persuasive to me. There's very much a lack of perspective shifting going on here. But I think at a broader level, the problem for me with the comparison between the Sicknick reporting and the WMD's reporting slash Al-Qaeda Saddam Hussein connection reporting after 9-11 is, of course, the material stakes. I mean, let's be honest here. Like, Uh, You know, an entire country, we might argue an entire region was destroyed in response to one set of stories. And here we have like a pretty ho-hum federal investigation that's ensued in response to this story. It's like not even close in terms of material consequences. No, it's it's orders of magnitude less like like. less significant in terms of stripping away of rights stripping away of life even i mean come on right like there this is a horrible comparison right massive surveillance programs were enshrined in response to one set of stories and um, think about like the and- billions and billions of dollars that are being invested in the military like the military budget like think of how many millions and billions of dollars have been spent amazing yeah It's not at all close. But then the other thing I think, which is subtler, but is kind of interesting to me, is the difference in how the stories came about. And so Alex referenced this briefly. We understand now that, you know, the WMD story and the Al-Qaeda Saddam connection, these were like stovepiped intelligence leaks. According to the intelligence community, those were kind of, it was kind of like a rogue intelligence outfit that was partially created at the behest of Bush and Cheney to get them the quote-unquote facts, the alternative facts they wanted to back an invasion of Iraq. And that was a very different media ecosystem where we were still overwhelmingly dominated by legacy media. There was hardly any social media. Compare that to this. I think what happened here is in some ways more banal, but also you know, concerning in its own way, which is that a ton of what the legacy media and cable news 
and so on were reporting about January 6th came from like crowdsourced videos that a ton of people were dissecting on social media. So it's likely that someone like circled some Capitol Police officer's head and said, this is Brian Sicknick and got it wrong. And then that got reported out by a ton of different media organizations. So that's different from like the CIA, a rogue outfit in the CIA directed by the president coming up with a certain narrative and then pushing it out to legacy media. This happened, I think, almost much more so by accident. It's about as opposite as it can be in terms of an origin. <laughs> like, Yeah, top down, bottom up. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's hard to imagine how, I mean, I guess, unless you want to like, posit that that uh, that initial seed of that incorrect was like a plant i, I well so i think you're getting at something there Sophie. i think <laughs> <Okay>. that <laughs> this is why i like to come fresh to these so in the right wing sort of fever swamp hive mind mixing metaphors here too um <laughs> they believe that like social media and the intelligence community and the feds and the democrats and msnbc that's all one thing it's just like one octopus and so anything that kind of goes viral on social media, oh, that's the feds attacking good patriots rather than, no, that's like, that was just some, some person, something some really person, happened. yeah, like, like circled a video and then a ton of people were like, oh, that seems right. And, and they all just kind of pushed it due to groupthink, not due to some nefarious plot from the top of the intelligence community. But yeah, I, that, I mean, I guess, I, I, I don't know, I, that that really kind of gets at that you're, exactly where I'm going with this, but that like gets at like your fundamental like level of sort of uh, participation in or association with the like the web of media that we have rather than, you know, instead of just like the TV news and the newspaper, like, you're, like TV news and radio, like instead of that, like the like all the stuff around you, like the overlap between like your social media feed and your TV, like how much of it is real for you and how much of it is not. You know what I mean? Like to deciding what level of connection you have to that is like pretty fundamental here in terms of like what you truly believe is going on out there. And it just seems like we're in a, a added point where like it it must just be so easy to like find the thing that like makes it click for you and then you're like yes and like plug into it and then like and then like what do you know like and then this is part of it and then this is part of it like it's i don't know like part of me wants to be like oh my god how could anybody think that these things but then it's like it the that whole level of like when when he plugs back into the matrix what's his face do you know what i mean what's his name uh joey pants you know who i'm talking about (laughs) Oh, Cypher. I'm trying to keep it tied with a Matrix reference, you know, when he, like, plugs back into the Matrix and he's eating the steak and it's great. You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. You know, oh, yeah. That must be kind of what it feels like to like plug into this kind of like web of theory. Yeah, no, it, it, it makes me think of our episode on evidence. I can't remember what episode that was, but we talked about how people become kind of aesthetically attached to certain forms of evidence, that there's something 
pleasing about pulling together all of these different sources and making a claim based on it. And people actually find like the web of associations kind of beautiful in its own way, like a serial killer with, you know, with pictures on the wall and, and string connecting it. Yeah, it's like it's like um, it's like uh, astrology, right? Like millennial <laughs> girls on Instagram have astrology and then like these, you know what I mean? Like it's just another version of that. It's like another kind of way to like think the world is working together. Just but with much, much more like horrible and oppressive implications that like ruin other people's lives. But just in the abstract, it's very similar, wouldn't you? You're talking about astrology, right? right. (laughs) Dangerous ideology needs to be contained. Oh boy. (laughs) No. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like it's just kind of, kind of, if it weren't for how like terrible it is, it'd be like, oh, how sweet for you to like think that's. I don't know. I don't know. Well, this is no, 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 no. Sophie, I think what you're pointing, what you're getting at here is that, I mean, we need to read this and other pieces of media like it as works of political imagination. These are things that are building a structure of beliefs that underlie a whole set of, or that, that basically form a foundation of political assumptions from which a bunch of other claims will then follow, right? Or you can find, you can amass, accumulate all the evidence you want to that points to this because your sort of pre-existing beliefs, you have sort of a cognitive bias to view everything in a certain light. You have a cognitive bias to view everything as like analogically following from um, you know, uh, what happened on 9-11 all the way through, you know, what's happening in the contemporary era, right? You, it's giving you a template for looking at these contemporary issues and saying, oh, I see the connections there. Of course, you know, th- the logic is so bird-brained that it's like, you know, you it's hard for people like us to take seriously because we have a little bit more contextual knowledge here. Well, and also because it can be so reductive. There's like, there's Antifa and... Black Lives Matter and like they're all it's just like one spooky guy and like it just it's like very reductive and and like yeah like a childlike sort of like a template that doesn't that like works if you just only look at it. Yeah and so maybe we can move to the second comparison here that I find really bizarre bird-brained but I think worth engaging and worth thinking through the implications of which is that Tucker interviews this guy, Ali Alexander, we don't need to get into a whole sort of biography of Ali Alexander, but the, the basic is that he's, you know, a far right activist who's presented again, simply as a proud patriot protester um, who was organizing for election integrity after the election in November. And in the course of interviewing Alexander, Tucker develops this comparison between how Trump supporters have been treated by the federal government since January 6th to how Muslims and Arabs in America were treated after 9-11. And so there's this basically, you know, the idea of prejudice against Arabs and Muslims. I think Ali Alexander says, I experienced, you know, that prejudice after 9-11 as a brown person and I'm now experiencing the same kind of prejudice for being a conservative after January 6th. After 9-11, I spent my early adulthood growing up in a post-9-11 world with an Arab name. It's open season on hate towards Muslims and Islam. At one point in 2012, I had to have a member of Congress call the FBI to get me removed from a watch list. And now, in this post-1-6 world, 
I'm on a list yet again because I've been deemed a minority in dissent. And so what do we think of this comparison? Because I think like this is a really common rhetorical tactic on the kind of right wing flirting with the left wing to say that, well, you're just they're, they're just doing another war on terror. This is the second war on terror. And they're targeting conservatives just like they targeted Muslims after 9-11. Well, I mean, this is where your sort of assumptions coming in really matter for how you interpret a claim like this. Because for me, it was sort of, I was kind of astounded that they even brought up a claim about like racial profiling and American racism post 9-11. Because like normally that's something that's... To walk. Like, well, right. And and normally that's something that Fox News would never touch. They believe that we live in a post-racial America, that racism hasn't existed since, you know, the passage of civil rights legislation in the 60s, right? Like they well, it's the same kind way of, in that, like, know, protesters are, like, protesters don't have rights unless we're protesting. And in which case, like, we have a right to protest. Like, it's that, like, ability right, to yeah. switch sides. American is, America is racist when we have people on our side who are being prejudiced against or who have, you know, we can make these sort of convenient comparisons and I mean it is also important to to acknowledge like I mean Ali Alexander is is Arab he is dark-skinned he is not Muslim uh, he is in fact a a Christian and there's one uh, there's one clip of him in there at a rally chanting uh, uh, Christ is king while they're Jesus is king yeah 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 yeah, while they're waving American flags around so I mean you know yeah but let me ask this so so we have and this is like what a convenient character to be able to have saying this. Here's what I want to know. This person is saying that post 9-11, they, as a brown-skinned person, experienced prejudice, hate speech. Yes, right? Like, this is... That's what happened. And now, post-January 6th, they're experiencing the same, but as a conservative. Okay. I guess what I want to know is, because, like, I absolutely believe that about his experience post 9-11. And, like, that's not even, like, an argument that that happened. Like, people have, like, of course. Of course. But what is the thing that is provoking the, like, anti... Like, what's he doing so that people that he passes by are heckling him for being a conservative? Or what? what's the interaction? Like, is there context? I think he's more comparing how the security state has treated him in both instances. I think at one point he references like TSA treatment after 9-11, like extra searches, stuff like that. And now he's arguing that the security state is targeting him for being conservative. Well, he is, I mean, he has been subpoenaed because of his involvement in organizing. He was one of the main organizers of the January 6th protests that turned violent so, so he has been as, subpoenaed po- so if he was being profiled racially post 9-11 at the airport security wise now because his name because he himself personally was subpoenaed he himself and is being treated with heightened security for that reason is he being profiled for being himself i would say so yes okay. like so i think I, I think think that really works right. does it like yeah Everybody that has my name and is me is being profiled for being a certain kind of way. Like, that's not actually <laughs> being profiled. Yeah, no, it's the, it's the individualist version of it. I'm <laughs> so, unless, there's some, unless I'm missing something, I don't think that works. No, I think, I think his argument is that 
I'm being targeted because I'm a Trump supporter. I'm being targeted because I was a patriot who was mad that Biden stole the election. And I, I was so mad that I had the temerity to organize a protest of other patriots who were mad about that. It's very important to keep in mind that like all of this is PR and perhaps even a, 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 a strategic legal strategy, right? Because he's currently under the gun of potential charges. So this is this all could be intentional legal rhetoric. Absolutely. I mean, I think, and this is probably diving, this is maybe a nice transition into the other parts of the doc as well. I think it's very savvy to point out that this is coming out at a particular time while, you know, these people in this documentary are still under investigation, are, you know, currently involved in legal proceedings where it might be useful to release some media that dissociates them from the actual, like, violence that happened at the Capitol as sort of like, well, our intention was to go and express our, you know, dissident opinion, but but the riot was never our intention. We never wanted that to happen. We were never intending, you know, uh, Ali Alexander actually says, you know, there's there's footage of me, you know, getting a text from uh, from somebody who's telling who's saying, like, you need to get over here and stop these people from pulling the police barricades down. I wasn't at the Capitol when it descended into chaos. And uh, that's only by God's grace, because I was scheduled to be there. Secret Service let us out at a point where we would have been there when the first punch was thrown. That's strange. I get a, a text from the campaign that you should get there and de-escalate because things are not going well. It was a very helpless feeling. And so, you know, yeah, there there probably is a lot of strategic planning going on here to help these people, you know, maybe beat a charge. Um, and again, I think that becomes a lot more clear in the second half of this documentary. Yeah, so that takes care of Ali Alexander. So the, I mean, and Alex, feel free to redirect because you watched this thing just as closely as I did. The the only other major claim and, and major focus that I wanted to make sure we covered, first of all, the documentary's account of the Black Lives Matter protests and the media coverage surrounding them, which happened in summer 2020, but were a continuation of years of, of protests against police brutality. So the account of those protests is that they were 100% violent riots. There's a ton of footage of like burning buildings shown and, you know, violent clashes, skirmishes. And the description of the media coverage is that the media coverage entirely framed those protests as peaceful protests. So there's this part in which Tucker like edits together peaceful protests, peaceful protests, peaceful protests, protest, peaceful protests, peaceful protests, peaceful protests, peaceful protests, peaceful protests, peaceful protests, peaceful protests. Too many see the protests as the problem. No, the problem is what forced your fellow citizens to take to the streets. A bunch of different you know, cable news clips of anchors saying peaceful protests alongside footage of like burning buildings and violent clashes. As well as these, you know, there are some clips of, you know, people saying like, oh, well, what if a few buildings do get burned? Maybe they deserve to or whatever. Like, you know, saying basically that they are like legitimizing protest, like violent protest tactics by either referring to them as peaceful protests or saying like, well, actually, the violence is good. 
Yeah, so they they bring on uh, Elijah Schaefer, this uh, correspondent for uh, Blaze TV, as well as, you know, Tucker kind of brings himself back in here. Uh, the quote that I highlighted here was that Tucker says, The media and Democratic Party leaders created the environment that made the January 6th violence all but inevitable. Which I thought was kind of an incredible claim here, <laughs> that it's actually the, the liberal media that's responsible for legitimating, uh, and Elijah Schaefer uh, makes this comparison too, that it has this instigating role of saying like look at all these look at all these cool protests that happened last summer that you all actually that you know the viewers of this documentary obviously were like really you know despising of and making this very very crude and bizarre claim that because of the legitimation of the liberal media all of these conservatives were led to believe that it's okay to go and raid the capitol building because they've seen it happening on tv elsewhere and they've seen how cool everybody else looks while doing it and how much legitimation they get from the liberal media it just it's so like the logic breaks down even if you just try to explain it like i'm doing now or it's like that's what they have to do to get your attention is to like that's what a, like how strange one of the funniest details is that elijah schaefer actually uses the word gaslighting he says <laughs> he says it, it, i think this was about this was the liberal media gaslighting trump supporters into believing they could riot and get away with it i happen to believe that a lot of the ways they treated rioters that were left-wing, giving the narrative that there's no consequences for acts of violence, even on federal grounds. I believe that was part of sending a narrative to gaslight the right-wing into thinking that they could riot too and get away with it. We need to we need to support uh, uh, mental health awareness for uh, for uh, resisting patriots for Blaze TV correspondents. That's yeah, right. no, it's it's very bizarre, even just in the sense that first of all, this account of the protests is wrong, right? So in 2020, you know, as far as I could tell, I followed the protests pretty closely. Almost all of the quote-unquote violence, skirmishes, were instigated by the police. That's not discussed at all here. And I know that ha- that's what happened in Pittsburgh across several weeks of protests. Almost every time the police would do something to instigate a violent clash and then give themselves an excuse to arrest protesters. So this idea that, you know, the protests were inherently violent is wrong. Yeah, I mean, they do. And this is another point where, again, there's just contradictory logic all over the place, which is it's not unexpected in something like this. But again, I don't want to step on too much later on if we if we want to do this in sequence. But when they bring on uh, J. Michael Waller, uh, who is described as a professional agitator um, who uh, infiltrated uh, Soviet groups uh, at the World Peace Conference in what was it, the 70s, Calvin? I can't remember. Yeah, it was. No, no, it was the it was the 80s, the 80s. I believe, yep, short, right. shortly before the fall of the soviet union like he kind of he kind of takes credit for bringing down the soviet union he, he with does. his uh yeah his agitational yeah. tactics of, yeah. of infiltrating pro-communist groups i'm a senior analyst for strategy at the center for security policy and my area of specialization has been political warfare psychological warfare and subversion during the cold war i infiltrated soviet international front organizations for the purpose of causing provocations that would discredit the Soviets. January 6th was a political warfare operation. Having been trained by professional agitators in the past, I saw that this is a coordinated effort, that there are different cadres of of agents, provocateurs, and other troublemakers who had a sort of a military-like precision 
in what was to become a storming of the Capitol building. Yeah, so so he he in addition to that massive flex, he also is kind yeah. of using his uh, his his expertise, quote unquote, as a professional agitator to say, well, I you know I see this kind of stuff all the time, and there were all sorts of instances of, for example, the rioters being quote escalated by the police using concussive munitions, and again, it's sort of just like. God forbid. Oh, yeah. Heaven forbid that they, yeah, they've never done that before uh, for anybody other than the patriots um, that have uh, been protesting places. Uh, No, that is what instigates most uh, violence in these protests in the vast majority of cases. So, again, like, like, I think there's a reason why they don't, that why they treat these as kind of separate units separated by commercial breaks, because, you know, then you can forget, you can forget the chain of logic that allowed you to to accept the claim made in the last segment because there's going to be some contradictory bullshit that comes up in the next one that if you pay too close of attention you might uh, you might start tripping over uh tripping over these claims a little bit it's uh it's where that like short attention span comes into play it's like really right, <laughs> helping us along here Absolutely. I mean, I just wanted to say the other thing about J. Michael Waller uh, that I thought was kind of uh, interesting was he talks about how some of the rioters were changing clothes uh, and cited that as an example of uh, these are crisis actors or outside agitators rather than just like, I mean, that's an OPSEC tactic to avoid being identified uh, across multiple pieces of security footage. Like, I mean, they don't really talk about that at all. Basically, it's one of those examples of like, you know, some something that could have like a multi multitude of different meanings, but it's being shown to only have one specific meaning associated with it. If the rioters were changing clothes, even if, you know, they were they were hot or something, I don't know, like they, you know, that's being cited as an example of the fact that there were crisis actors being brought in. Uh, there were professional agitators in the audience. These weren't the true patriots who were uh, who were infiltrating the Capitol. It was these it was these outside actors. Well, yeah. And the, the only other thing I wanted to add back on the, the BLM comparison is so I think the, the account of what actually happened at the protests is wrong, but also the account of the media coverage is wrong. I mean, I remember I feel like I'm being gaslit. I remember when those protests were taking place, the liberal media gave a ton of space to critiques of the protests as being too violent, as being too agitational. Why don't they just vote, wait for the next election and vote? And, you know, giving tons of airtime to police chiefs and mayors denigrating the protesters. And so this account is completely wrong. The liberal media was by no means in the tank for the protests, even if the occasional MSNBC host would like say something performative like it is a real problem they're out there for a real reason you know that isolated soundbite doesn't outweigh all the other coverage of you know that these are riots that this is unproductive absolutely not I feel like the majority of media was like critical to neutral perhaps like I don't think anybody was really I think you're absolutely right Calvin which is like it does. It feels like being gaslit. It's not, it's not, f- which is why it is all so childish. Like things aren't equal. Things aren't, they're not the same. You can't like, well, you were protested, I protested, you did this and I did this. Like, no, that's not, that's not how it happened. It's really frustrating. Well, yeah. And the other, the other really important thing to just say is that the 2020 BLM protests were over real material things like George Floyd being 
strangled to death by a police officer. We all saw it with our eyes. We all saw the video, whereas January 6th was about uh, losing an election. Right, and, losing and, an election. And, and, and One white guy and, and lost claim- to another white guy. <laughs> like, it's not... And, like, who who don't really, like, if you zoom out, aren't really doing things a whole lot different. Like, it's it's so... It's so insulting and yeah just like devoid of any substance to like really make it seem like you know we're both mad about something it's like part of this the very concept of i was going to say this earlier like paid agitators like that being persuasive at all really only works if you're somebody who can't imagine like (laughs) living an oppressed life like well they must be they must be paying people to get mad like no you don't have to pay people to get mad like what are you talking about? Like, it's just, it's so, it's, it's, yeah, like, because the same, this whole, like, false equivalency of, like, I was being oppressed as a brown person and now I'm being pres- oppressed as a conservative, like, being oppressed as a, a brown person, like, y- y- you can't, you can't not signal that about yourself and the whole system is set up to reinforce that kind of profiling and oppression. Whereas, like, if I wear my MAGA hat, some people might look at me funny at the Target. But if I don't wear my (laughs) MAGA hat, nothing changes, and I'm still doing just fine. Which is, like, it's just not... Yeah. It's not the same. It's not the same. It does not rocket science to, like, pick it apart. It's, like, pretty embarrassing. Yeah, and I mean, if we, you know, if we have any Curb Your Enthusiasm fans listening, you can wear a MAGA hat to get out of uh, uh, engagements, lunches you don't want to attend. Um, (laughs) It's a great, it's a great tactic. Larry David is national treasure. Genius. Um, But uh, yeah, I think, I think the last, the last point here that I think is worth unpacking is this idea that like straightforwardly this was a, a federal government plot? Oh yeah, and so and so this is kind of the big claim that uh, the documentary is building towards with the this idea of outside agitators. As Alex said earlier, J. Michael Waller is drawn on as the source for this idea that there were a- outside agitators in the crowd. Waller himself works for a think tank that's asserted like the Muslim Brotherhood conspiracy about the U.S. government. Uh, the Center for Security Policy was founded by this guy, Frank Gaffney, who's like an Islamophobic far right figure who basically believes that the government has been captured by the Muslim Brotherhood. And so this is not a, this is not really new territory for Center for Security Policy people to claim that there are conspiracies within the U.S. government. But, yeah, this has really all been building towards this kind of straightforward, wacky conspiracy theory. Yeah, and and this is kind of where we get uh, another couple pieces of kind of astounding information that I was actually, at, the, at first at least, surprised that they included in the documentary just because it was sort of like wow this is really straying from what i thought was the uh was the fox news line here literally i have a quote here uh and i'll try to find it in the audio as well from darren beatty saying we quote we basically created the mujahideen in afghanistan in the first war on terror many of the groups that were the supposed terrorists were groups with which u.s government had had a very long and storied cooperative relationship. Basically, we created the Muajideen 
in Afghanistan certainly supported them. You know, as recently as basically the United States' cooperative relationship with ISIS, which it used for its geopolitical agenda countering the Assad regime in Iran and so forth. The elements that were designated responsible for terror were precisely the elements that the United States has a long history of instrumentalizing for its own purposes. Fact check, true. Yeah, fact check, true. Yeah, uh, tragic. The worst person you know just made a great point. But, you know... It's not often, you know, that's true. Uh, and and it's not often talked about because, you know, then it kind of raises some questions about, like, what were we doing in the Middle East? <laughs> like, how were we fighting these these awful proxy wars uh, during the 80s and 90s that uh, kind of led up to this arming of, uh, you know, uh, Wahhabist fundamentalists uh, about this, you know, whole like movement that kind of came out of it, you know, the creation of ISIS uh, from the power vacuum in Iraq and things like that. It's like literally, I mean, there's obviously a lot of other contingencies that are there, but like they're making this kind of uh, argument about the fact that our government intervenes to basically create terrorism, which in you know and they and they also cite examples of like FBI honeypots and entrapment plots uh, which has basically kind of been the way that the FBI has been justifying their budget lines uh, for the last uh, several decades which is to say that they basically create circumstances for people to say I am willing to go out and uh, commit XYZ terrorist attack. And then uh, all of a sudden the FBI swoops in and uh, right at the last second uh, rescues uh, American lives, despite the fact that they were the ones who kind of radicalized or attempted to radicalize these people in the first place. And the overwhelming number of those cases are black, brown and Muslim. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a great documentary out there if you're interested in how it happened in Pittsburgh uh, called Terror uh, with the uh, with I think it's the parentheses around the T so it's meant to read like error or T error um, about an actual you know uh, about not only about the uh, entrapment plots of the FBI but also about the exploitative practices of the FBI towards their informants generally people who have been you know convicted on felonies have gotten out on plea deals and basically have no other work other than just being informants for the FBI that are abused constantly so at any rate it's none of it is good but they're using all of that to say that this is the exact what what is happening here what perhaps happened at the January 6 riot was that there were some you know there were actual federal agents in the crowd who were trying to incite people further to violence as a way of further cracking down on uh, on patriot resistors yeah and i mean so i i'm of two minds about this actually if i'm being completely honest on the one hand I think it's actually plausible, and and that's because there has been a shifting of resources in, and not just like you know since January sixth or since Trump's presidency, but it kind of started in the last decade, I would say, away from not and actually I should say not even away from sort of this idea of domestic Islamic extremism, but certainly acknowledging white supremacist groups as a serious criminal threat, terror threat in the intelligence community. So there are resources devoted to that threat, although there have also been whistleblowers who have come out and said they're not actually taking it seriously or there are budget line items for that, but it's still deprioritized compared to like this specter of black identity extremism, which they equate with 
white supremacy. And it's basically just a way to smear Black Lives Matter activists. But yeah, I would acknowledge that the feds probably do infiltrate far right groups and white supremacist groups. And so and, and we know that like in the case of the Michigan plot against Governor Gretchen Whitmer, there were a number of federal agents involved in that plot. But my question about this is if that were the case, I don't think they're that good at hiding it. And and often they're proud to take responsibility for it. So I think we would kind of know more by now about that if it were the case. The other question I have is if we have this security state apparatus, isn't that kind of how you want it to be used? Like I'm largely critical of that apparatus, but as long as you have it, the threats should be prioritized in a way that makes logical sense. And so if it did come out, if we did get solid evidence that there were feds in these groups, assuming that they didn't, that they weren't entirely responsible for it um, and for provoking the violence, which I kind of doubt they were because these far right, hard right Trump supporters were violently activated during Trump's entire presidency. Like, why would that come out of nowhere on January 6th? You know, the guy who shot up the synagogue in Pittsburgh was not a fed, right? Like we know that there are violent far right elements in our society that are organic. Right. And so my question would be if we did get solid evidence that feds were monitoring these plots, would that actually be a bad thing or is that kind of what the apparatus exists to do? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good question, but it's also kind of like, it's one that just like makes me sad that we have to ask it at this point that we got to a point where like, this is, this is the best that we can hope for rather than like, because honestly, like I'm, I'm fundamentally opposed to the existence of the FBI and the CIA. I don't think that, I don't think that they were ever created with good intentions. I don't really think that they have ever operated under anything close to justifiable pretenses from the, from, you know, the, you know, their involvement in assassinations during the civil rights movement, all the way up to, you know, the coups in the Middle East or not the Middle East, uh, Central America, South America, um, all the way to their, you know, continuing involvement in destabilization of, you know, the Middle East and other places. Like I, I, it's hard for me to even want to think about a justificatory narrative for a use of their resources when there are so many better things that that could be put towards that potentially could be ameliorating the material conditions that lead people into these kinds of far right ideologies. Right. I mean, I'm obviously making some, some assumptions about like what leads people to that, but I still, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I don't think I'm ready to go on record uh, <laughs> making any sort of argument for what the FBI should be doing at this point. That's just my take. Well, yeah, I mean, that's prudent, right? I think just the very, I don't know, I, the, something about this, like, makes me be sort of more inclined to your, to the idea that they weren't involved because... Again, without saying whether or not they should have been. <laughs> I'm not going to commit to that either. But, uh, yeah, it just seems unlikely that... I, I guess I. it's really... It's a tough call. But again, Alex, as you say, like, is there an answer that's not depressing? Because, like, in as much as the institution exists to take threats seriously, they should be taking this threat as seriously as any other threat. But then, like, in as much as they exist at all, like... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's all... 
pretty depressing, yeah. I guess. To my mind, it's just a matter of like whatever resources are being marshaled right now. Like I yeah, I, I am not I'm not trying to be sort of like an imaginative idealist here, but it's just I don't know. For me, I just end up getting too sad when I think about sort of like well, this is do do I accept the existence of the FBI as a forever inevitability and work under that sort of sense of realism, quote unquote, or do I, you know, or or do I choose to invest my my mental resources towards I don't know, like trying in some way to work towards an alternative? I I still don't know. I'm I feel very adrift on that question. Right, but I think yeah, I mean, I think probably we're all in agreement that even before you get to the stasis of action at the stasis of fact, we have very little evidence that this is true. And in fact, based on past precedents, we probably would know if it were true, either the feds would brag about it or they'd be so ham fisted (laughs) that it would come out. It would be super obvious. Yeah. They're, they're not particularly good at what they do. It is something that's not often discussed. That's one of the best arguments for their abolition. Yes, right? absolutely. And it, and again, I think Calvin, you said this earlier, but it seems like a weird moment. Like why wait until January 6th to like try to, I, I don't know. It just seems like the level of like integration and like I don't know. Just seems kind of. Like- well, and the other thing, the other thing I would say is that like this claim depends on the idea that these groups are super organized and militant and tactical, but that's not new. The far right has been very organized and militant and tactical for decades, and that's part of why I take this sort of seriously because it looks to me like these groups are getting better at what they do in certain ways, and that's that's terrifying to me, um, uh, particularly if they have inroads with members of Congress and, you know, people in the military, not to say that like the entire military rank and file would back them in a coup, but you know, any amount of military connection is, is, is not what you want with, with out and out fascists. But yeah, I think we've cooked this goose folks. I think we've cooked our, (laughs) cooked our new year's, uh, slash Christmas slash Hanukkah goose. (laughs) Is that um, is that a is that a food that's that's used at, at all? It's the traditional Hanukkah goose. You've never heard of that? Ah, uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. That's right. Yeah. No, I mean it's it, it was definitely interesting watching this. I will. It was it was definitely an, it was an interesting experience dipping dipping the toes into the soup bowl pool of uh, chlorine infested. Uh, I'm just trying to come up with as many stupid mixed metaphors as I can. It's uh. Yeah, taking the temperature of the pickled soup bowl swimming pool with chlorine in it uh, of the far right media ecosystem. It was definitely interesting. I learned a lot. I don't know. I I can't say that I enjoyed it particularly, but if nothing else, it was it was an interesting dive into into the sort of imagination work that's being done on that side of the aisle, which I mean, I think that there is at least if nothing else, something to be learned about how these kinds of like mythical narratives are constructed and how the sort of basis for alternative facts are fashioned through a lot of, you know, arguments from analogy, through a lot of this kind of analogical reasoning that, I mean, I think can be very compelling in a lot of instances for radicalization in in either direction uh, on the political spectrum. So, I mean, if nothing else, I think there is, you know, as, you know, if if you want to do agitprop in, in one way or another, there's always something to learn from media like this. But overall, I mean, you know, 
make sure you make sure the logic isn't uh, isn't uh, self contradictory across segments. That's the there's there's a lot to be there's a lot to be said for the presentational style of this. That uh, that you know if you, if you're reading it with any greater amount of contextual knowledge, it kind of doesn't it, it kind of falls apart pretty easily. Yeah, and I mean I, I think my my final thoughts on it are that the fact that some of these critiques of the security state and and empire are are welcome on far right media and and maybe are, are less welcome on liberal media is something the liberal media should reflect on for my money if people on the right take these claims seriously they should be Biden's biggest supporter he got out of Afghanistan <laughs> he he's cut down on drone strikes and so that's something that the liberal media should talk about more and should acknowledge and the fact that they don't the fact that it's left to these cranks is, is a really big problem. Uh, and I also think that people on the left should not have any illusions that because the, you know, these far right ideologues acknowledge this stuff, they actually mean it or they are actually our allies. Absolutely. Sophie, what about you? What did you, what did you, from not having watched this, what did you, what did you think? Um, well, I think that, uh, yeah, I think it, there's just, you know, insofar as we're just, it just, it, uh, it's it's always very scary to think about how easily manipulated people seem to be and it's as we've said like there's so the facts of the matter are so sort of beside the point in a lot of this for the way it gets talked about and the way it works to like affect people that it's it's really uh unsettling and i also think that it just seems like you know, for whatever reason, and for a lot of different reasons, the the right just play that game so effectively, and like it's maddening when you're when you're like, you know, kind of taking a, a fact oriented and like well, you know, logical blah blah blah. Like it's like it's maddening to like watch it happen, but they're good at it, and I think that you know we're seeing how people are kind of picking and choosing the things they're talking about, the evidence they're pointing to, the the points that they're making, right? Alex, you brought up some things that were circulated on Fox that you would think they wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, but then when it's convenient, they do. So, like, I think that there is, in a weird way, um, this is kind of like back backward logic, but there are points of agreement about things, or at least we see that, like, you can get different people fired up about the same thing or angry about the same thing, which I think is evidence of the fact that we do have the, the, the workers of this nation have a lot in common and a lot of things that we can all find common ground in, I think. But like, yet again, so much of it is the way it gets talked about and served up to us and the way we select it for ourselves. And I think that if if any like progress is to be made in an effective way, people really need to get their shit together in terms of coming up with effective sort of strategies for persuading people. Because it just seems like I, I don't know. It just even though it's like really really seems so uh, lacking in substance. There's something about the way these things get talked about that really works. And it's I don't know. I think. I don't know where that's not really going anywhere in particular, but people need to think about how how we could be framing things more effectively and differently if we're hoping to organize people, which isn't necessarily the point we're 
that's not, I can't assume that's the point anybody's, of what people are trying to do. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Just the lack of logic and the persuasiveness of the way things get talked about always kind of blows me away when we look at this kind of thing. And it's spooky. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I really appreciate what you said there, Sophie, because I think that's why it's important to look at this as a piece of imagination work, right? Because if we think about it that way, we can see inroads into how would you develop counter messaging to these kinds of people by thinking about, like, what are the belief structures that they are basing their, you know, opinion formation on? <clears throat> maybe they are being more open to, you know, anti-imperialist stances. Obviously, they're maybe coming at it from like a nationalistic protectionist stance, but, you know, it at least gives us resources from which to think how we might reframe something like that to you know let it to let them know that like you know being a patriot means that you are standing for the fbi that you are standing for empire these are not things that you can dissociate from one another that in fact it is you know kind of the whole thing that's the problem and that we kind of need a fundamental change not a return to you know this sort of imaginary ideal of what we think america once was right yeah, I mean, I I think there's a very real question of how successful is this and 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 who that's persuaded on this is actually persuadable to what extent do we just use it as intel about, you know, what the far right believes and and to understand that this is a ruling class ideology. This is not a kind of bottom up. This is what the workers really think uh that this is actually like powerful Republican donors are circulating these ideas to kind of muddy the debate. Well, right, but it's right? like and, what and people yes. are up against. Do you know what I mean? Like that's what absolutely, yeah. And so it's it's val it's valuable to know your enemy and and to understand the kind of like linguistic anthropology of like what do these people believe and and how do they talk about it and 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 why does it hold this kind of broader animating imaginative meaning for them? Absolutely. And so I don't mean to I don't mean to downplay the importance of of organizing and i think that again like let's talk about foreign policy if you want to talk about foreign policy like let's reduce empire and redirect those resources to social services yep right absolutely but let's leave it there folks we went we went long we went hard uh we went uh what are some other metaphors we went hot <laughs> not, we went not hot, get out of the park hot, you got any hard. baseball or it's off season yep yeah. Uh, oh man! Here well, we, we went. In, we went into extra innings. We did go into extra sure. innings. Yep, yep, yep. It was. Uh, a... But I threw you some curveballs, and I appreciate <laughs> some you Calvin staying in the balls. box, yep. staying in the box there. You better believe it. And uh, uh, fighting hard, but absolutely. But I think we scored a home run. Sorry, <laughs> we did. We scored a home run. We drove in all the runners. Yep. And um, but yeah, it was good to hang out with you guys and uh, hope you have a wonderful rest of your break. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hi. Our show today was produced by Calvin Pollock, Alex Helberg, and Sophie Wadzak, with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producers at large are Ben Williams and Mike Loudenbach. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, 
please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.